Take a network break. You might want to grab an extra virtual donut because there was a spasm of product releases this week, so we have a lot to cover, including a new NAC offering from Arista, an update to Aruba Central, next-gen software from NetBrain, a new security offering from Cisco, and more. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. Your branch has changed. Your SD-WAN should, too. Join Palo Alto Networks to see how AIML is powering next-gen SD-WAN and SASE for the branch. SDX Central and Palo Alto are hosting an exclusive online event so you can see how next-gen SD-WAN and SASE can help you modernize and secure your branches. Go to SDX central.com to get the link to this free event or see the show notes for network break episode 428 uh, we also have a tech bytes podcast after the news where we're going to discuss multi-cloud deployments and supporting hybrid workers with vmware's workspace one we're sponsored by vmware and we'll be talking with vmware partner itq uh, last but not least uh heavy wireless debuts on may 2nd the first episode will be on the new wi-fi 7 standard and what you need to know to decide if and when to upgrade yeah heavy wireless will be uh helmed by the indefatigable is it indefatigable or indefatigable? I'm going to say sure. indefatigable. Indefatigable. In, okay, I'll go with that. Keith Parsons. Keith Parsons, very well known, um, has been a trainer for many years, uh, runs the WLPC independent conference that he has every year. Should be an absolutely like good thing for people who are into the wireless networking. It won't be a part of any of our aggregated feeds. You have to subscribe to it separately. So go out there, search for Heavy Wireless, and you can get the pre-show show. That's where we just drop a piece of blank audio in to get the feed running. So as soon as the show publishes on May the 2nd, you'll be ready to subscribe and download and start listening to Heavy Wireless. We're very excited about it. And we'll be publishing a new episode every two weeks. Uh, so not not overwhelming mm. to your feed, but but good stuff. Yep. All right. Uh, before we hit the news, we have a, an FU, a follow-up. Uh, in last week's network break, we were talking about uh, the new Broadcom Jericho 3. Greg, you mentioned uh, no deep buffers on the chip. A sharp-eared listener wrote in to say you were probably thinking about the <laughs> Tomahawk family because Jericho does, in fact, have big, deep, full buffers. Yeah, I got that wrong. Um, the Jericho is the backbone chip. And for some reason, most of the vendors still believe that uh, that if you're going to be doing networks then implementing a multi-level hierarchical distributed caching packets in where nodes implement partially non-deterministic implementations of dequeuing and unqueuing of unspecified capability, right? If you're going to have quas and, and packet management in the network, you've got to have 20 to 50 devices in there and every one of them is going to have a different queue. So you need big buffers is what everybody believes because you can't do queuing, which is a value add. But the fact that you know, you're going to have 30 different queuing implementations across the network and that you're not actually sure which dequeuing algorithm each one's going to implement kind of makes cost pointless. But anyway, let's just assume that cost matters for some people on a device-by-device -device basis. Who cares about the end-to-end, -end, right? So the Jericho does actually have deep buffers. Um, that's because it's model where it does have value is in the data centers for companies like Facebook and, uh, you know, Google. And when you're doing almost close to 100% utilization, some of those buffers can actually come in quite handy because as soon as you go into retransmissions, your actual network can go into a collapse mm -hmm. if you get too many retransmissions. So it can help inside the data center, but outside of the data center, you know, unless you're in a very, very niche use case, it's generally not a thing. So the Jericho is, in fact, the biggest buffers, featureful. It's got virtual output queue base, which can also do service provider applications. It's also got an interface out to HPM memory modules. So if you want to hold like, you know, 10 million, you know, IPv6 and IPv4 addresses in near line memory, high bandwidth memory is a way to do that. A number of uh, router companies are now using HBM on these ASICs to get their high capacity routing tables. So you can hold multiple IPv6 tables and multiple IPv4s. 
And as the person points out, uh, Tomahawk is then down at the next level, focuses on raw bandwidth, often using spines for the switching layers. And then Trident has lots of features, programmable assets, many chip variants, all the way down into the campus to some extent, although Broadcom has a whole separate chipset for low-cost camp applications. And yeah, my mistake. I did actually get it quite right. I quite wrong and I should have gotten it right. Maybe I was having a bad day. One of those things that happens, we, we talk about a lot of stuff, So, but we do appreciate uh, the corrections, mm-hmm. comments, clarifications, whatever uh, you want to send us. You can do that at packetpushers.net slash FU. As always, the FU is for follow-up. All right, no, this- and thanks to the person this week who just sent the FU part. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we did get an FU that was an FU. <laughs> That's right. Which I and, think uh, was in jest. Thanks for that valuable feedback. It also gave me a bit of a laugh. <laughs> yes, we... <laughs> Laughs are also welcome, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's been a long week. <laughs> All right, let's dive into some news and see if we can also generate some FU here. Uh, first, Arista has announced a new cloud-based network access control, or NAC, service to give enterprises a little more control over who gets access to campus networks. It's essentially a straightforward NAC approach, leverages pre-existing identity stores, including Active Directory or Azure AD plus Okta, OneLogin, and others. Uh, for mobile devices and laptops, the cloud service will issue an 802.1x certificate for network access. It also integrates with mobile device management management software to issue that cert. It can also work with IoT devices using techniques like Mac authentication and pre-shared keys uh, for devices that can't hold the cert. Yeah, I looked at this. Uh, you took the briefing on this. So you have sort of more of the details on this, and I've been through the deck and then poked away at the documentation that I can find. This is not normal Arista marketing. Have they hired some people from weird places to do this announcement? Did you get that? I did not get that, in fact. I was actually thinking, yeah. you know, they could have slapped zero trust all over this. They're not. They, they're just saying, yeah, it's, it's NAC. It's, it's the NAC maybe that they, known and loved for years. Maybe they pulled it back for the briefing. The, I don't know. At the last minute or something like that. Um, there's a lot of uh, fluffy hand-waving going on here and convolution of concepts. That's where you get concepts and you sort of smash them all together. And because the title here, uh, AI-driven identity, uh, basically what they're doing is it's you're getting a mix up of AI identity management and campus and WAN networking. And so I'm not a hundred percent sure. So it turns out, let me just get the AI part out of the way. The AI sure. is just chat GPT. So there's a whole software interface here to do NAC. Uh, like most vendors, Arista wants to have its own network access controller. We've got a Ruby ClearPass, Cisco IC. There's a whole bunch of them out there. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a part of the cloud vision suite so that if you want to do you know, uh, management or micro-segmentation of the network and all that sort of stuff, this is the tool that you would do it. And then the AGNI product would then work, federate with other products. So if you're out there using an identity management like Okta, you want to know if that person's logged in or not, you can send a query out to the Okta server, you know, or so forth and so on. There's a whole range of different third-party tools that manage for some definition of identity, identity. Now, identity is very wafty. It can be Active Directory, it can be Okta, it can be something quite sophisticated, mm-hmm. or it can be just what's inside of the NAC. So if you're just trying to put control on the network, you can just use this as a straight-up um, identity slash NAC, uh, micro-segmentation, security tools are all fairly standard in 2023, nothing magic here. Um, and if you wanted to do something much more specific, you know, upmarket where you've got like a really full-on identity manager, you can do that. But uh, otherwise, the AI is just a chat interface. Yeah, the AI didn't come up in the briefing, uh, so I'm, mm. I'm not uh, up, up on what the that aspect of it is. Uh, and I also should note, Arista's calling this product AGNI or Agni, uh, if you're out there searching for it. I haven't worked out what the G stands for. It wasn't obvious. <laughs> <laughs> it's just... It's just 
Agni, Arista's next generation identity. Oh, there it is. There's the G, next gen. Next gen. A N A N G I S. If you drop the S and the at the end right. and called it so Arista generation, I don't know. It's, yeah. Yeah. I, I guess my question is I'm not really sure what's next gen about this because it does sound like a fairly standard NAC solution. NAC's been with us for mm. what, 20, 20 years now or, or more, mm-hmm. possibly? Yeah, so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Next gen seems a little bit outside of what this actually is. Um, but I think this does align with Arista's sort of renewed focus on the campus, on the enterprise, uh, that they are mm. looking to compete here. They're looking to round out their portfolio. We talked a few weeks ago about their new WAN routing slash SD uh, WAN capabilities, uh, again, targeted at the enterprise. So they are, I think, trying to demonstrate we have an enterprise interest and, and here's the various ways we're doing it. Yeah, I think so. And that's what I mean about the the marketing here seems to have gotten away from itself a little bit. You know, <laughs> the, the the I can't quite work out what AGNI stands for, but that's fine. Um, it sort of jumps all over the place and says we've got AI in the header, but when you get down to it, it's just a chat mm-hmm. interface, which is something Mist put in about three years ago, I want to say. Yes, They least. started to talk about it. And we've talked to uh, Aruba about the same idea, putting chat into the product, and they positioned it as very helpful for tier one help desk mm-hmm. we can just make a query like you know are all of the wi-fi in such and such a building up or available or are they having problems or whatever and the chatbot can basically simplify those it won't be very helpful in my view for you know escalations you're not going to be saying to the bot you know tell me the performance of the rssi in such and such a place unless you can get really good at prompt engineering and start to have a bunch of pre in which case why not just automate it as a report yeah. sort of thing so um yeah can be useful but i'm not sure that um does feel a little bit, um, yeah, yeah, I've said yeah. A couple of other details to round it out. Uh, this is a cloud-delivered service. It's not uh, on-prem. Uh, and Arista also says it can do continuous assessment of network-connected devices by integrating with Arista's own NDR offering, which is called Awake, uh, or with integrations with CrowdStrike and Cortex-XDR. Arista's not rolling out a client agent here. This, again, is just a certificate that will be delivered to you via TLS uh, if you're coming onto the network via a laptop or mobile device. So not an agent software solution. Maybe they'll be heading down that road at some point. That did not come up in our discussion. But Mm. I I think if Arista wants to get serious about uh, secure client access, that is the way to go. I think if you're a networking company in 2025, say, you are going to have to have a complete spectrum solution here. The future of the campus is not on-premise, it's off-premise. So whether you're, you know, that idea that everybody's in a branch or in an office right. and you don't need to develop and support a client for iOS, MacOS, Windows, uh, you know, Linux potentially and so on, that's just not true now. Uh, companies expect that you will provide them with a client and have full, you know, campus-like, branch-like access to whatever systems that you define. I should not just be, you know, forwarding packets into Cloudflare or whatever, mm-hmm. unless I've got an agent to control that and to do some sort of edge. So, but it, I mean, Arista's coming from a long way behind here. They focused on the data center with great success. You know, selling, shifting a lot of lead, you know, and and bent metalwork into the big vendors, and they want to broaden their portfolio into adjacent markets. So yeah, that makes sense. 
Yep, baby steps in that direction. Uh, links in the show notes if you want to uh, get more information, we will move on. Aruba Networks has announced a new version of Aruba Central. That's its management console for wired and wireless. Uh, it's including the use of AI to help network administrators identify and fix problems faster. The company says it's built a data lake based on the 2.5 million devices it has under management, and it's using that data lake to train the AI models. Uh, it's also partnering with IBM Watson so that network engineers can use natural language queries to get information and recommendations about their wired and wireless networks. Yeah, Aruba had their Atmosphere conference this week. This feels yep. like an announcement that was saved up to try and have some good news to be putting together there. I think the the message that I came away with was I'm not really interested in AI chatbots that much. Um, I think there's going to be a while before they turn into something useful, if that makes sense. They have to be, I think the success of these AI chatbots will be if they're chained very narrowly on the on what they're being used for. So you don't right. want to be querying IBM Watson for an essay for your, you know, the degree you're doing at night in modern <laughs> Roman literature, you know, or, you know, Shakespeare or whatever, because that's what IBM Watson could do. What I would like to see is an AI chatbot that these companies are training themselves just on what we need to be trained on. They're cheap and relatively easy to use. I don't really need an LLM and a model that's going to be able to, you know, give me expound on the on the emotional value of Shakespeare's sort of thing you know right and it sounds so, like that's what it's doing because they're, they are talking about all the telemetry they gather with the devices under management to, to train these AI models so they are taking a very focused approach on and that makes perfect sense I mean that's exactly what mm-hmm. Mist slash Juniper has been doing for a long time and I think all the other vendors have recognized like yeah this is this is the way to go if we're going to bring this into yeah I think the networking space. as AI stabilizes and it draws in more and more um, people who get skills in AI and developing models I think the vendors will tend to move to doing this in-house. Doing AI at small scale is relatively cheap and relatively simple. Not simple, but not, you know, only five companies in the world are going to do this. That's not how AI is working out at all. You can see that by going onto Reddit and seeing the people at home doing, generating uh, various AI, chat GPT, you know, mid-journey type training models that are on a specific topic. Some are good and some really, really unpleasant ones. There you go. One thing that I did um, take away from this is that Aruba is making a big push on NAS, which is the idea that network as a service. Yeah, network as a service, which is this idea that you want to connect all of the off-prem clouds and all of the on-prem clouds all together in some way. So you actually want to have a cloud-hosted network. You don't just want to be using SD-WAN to do bandwidth bypass. Um, And and my sort of mental progression here is that you go from SD-WAN to SASE to SSE, which is the advanced security tooling and so forth. A lot of that is off-premise. To NAS, where you actually have a full-on network as a service. And each one of those generations becomes a superset of the other one. So NAS still includes SD-WAN, probably still includes some hardware, but may also include a client agent that connects you to the network, whether you're at home or on a plane or whatever. Well, hold on here. I agree with you on that definition of NAS. The problem mm-hmm. here is that that's not how Aruba is using the term network as a service. What they mean by okay. network as a service is essentially outsourcing. You can have HPE oh, Aruba. Green-laking? Yeah, green laking. Yeah. You can have HPE yeah, Aruba yeah. manage your entire network. You can have a channel partner manage your entire network, including buying all the gear and setting it up and operating it for you. They're, they're basically, when they say NAS, they mean yeah. outsourcing. They don't mean it the way yeah. that everybody that else is... is using the term. <laughs> That is very uncomfortable. I think <laughs> customers will be like, if you want to compare that to somebody like Alkira, who is, it could be seen as, you know, outsourcing, but in reality, their whole network is an overlay on top of everybody else's network. Right. And right. That is one way to look at network as service. Another way is to say, I've got a hybrid cloud 
solution. So my SD-WAN can support connections into GCP, AWS, Azure, um, just as much as it can to Equinox Bare Metal as it can to my on-prems and can also direct connect me to my branches, right? Um, right. With, with and a that is, again, devices, and I, not what Aruba's talking about. <laughs> yeah, which is disappointing. When, when Aruba says NAS, it means outsourcing. It just, it just even means GreenLake, yeah. Yes, and what everybody else talks about NAS is essentially building an overlay network mm-hmm. that will operate for you. That is not what Aruba means. So that's now confusing. I <laughs> I have been posting some questions about Aruba and how people see them. I got some valuable feedback. One of the things I don't know: did we talk about um, Aruba requiring access security sometime uh, around the early February? Probably, I'd have to look it up, but I bet we did. I I I, I do recall. I think yes. I think we did. I'd, I'll okay. look it up while we're talking. If they have, I've kind of, it's kind of passed me by. Oh, yes, we did in Network Break 420. There you go. So somebody's brought to my attention that uh, HP did buy Access Security, and Access Security is an SSE provider. So that is, it has the off-prem security operations center, send your data to us and we'll cleanse it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has a range of other things as well. It actually tends more into a much more complex sort of uh, security capability. It's a bit bit more than I kind of thought it was. I don't want to dive into it too deeply here, but it is kind of at the place where we're saying Aruba now has a much more comprehensive portfolio, which continues to highlight the fact they still don't own a firewall. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that HPE as a company is saying, oh, if you want a firewall, well, we'll go and get a Palo Alto or a Checkpoint or a Fortinet. That, if you're going to green lake, you really want you know, to own that product so you can put it into your product and capture all of that profit and have control over the product features and what what it needs because you don't want people deploying Palos into your greenlight infrastructure and then doing something that you can't support or Palo mm. suddenly changing the way they work and you've got a bunch of customers using third-party products and and this is something that HPE's made a mistake on many times over the you know the last 10 15 years but it does bother me that they just don't have a firewall you can't go and buy HP Aruba firewall it's it's integrated into their SD-WAN, integrated into their wireless, you know, it's got basic firewalling functionality. It's not exactly application inspection, you know, type stuff. It's not a full-on application firewall or, you know, what we do today. But if you just wanted to put an appliance in at a single place to do firewalling, you're going to have to go to a third party and that's still missing out of the out of the product. So I can see them getting there after my original response, but I still think that that's a gap. Yeah, I mean, maybe they're thinking, uh, you know, as the industry moves toward cloud-delivered security services and they bought Access, which does have a cloud-delivered firewall that they've mm. sort of, you know, kind of got that in their portfolio. And maybe they're thinking we can just skip having an edge device uh, because there's so much competition for that market. I don't know. And maybe somewhere down the line they will buy a firewall. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, it just... I agree, though. Mm. If you're going to be a network player at this point, where it seems like all of the mm. networking legacy vendors are basically building out the full menu that you can just buy everything you want from them, for Aruba mm. not to have it at this point does feel like a, a gap in the portfolio. And I guess I would say the same yeah. about Arista, frankly. I mean, I guess they sort of kind of announced a, a small branch one, but that they're also, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just because you're doing application filtering in the SD-WAN, because you've got a cloud-hosted you know, SSE that's mm-hmm. delivering you out filtering information. Okay, yeah, I, that's a firewall to all intents and purposes, but where's the one that I put at the edge of my data center? Right. 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 And no, they don't have that, right? And they should. There has to be, you know, or if you've got some sort of legacy, uh, you don't want to be trying to then, you know, horizontally integrate your 40 net firewalls with your Aruba 
because you need a firewall at this place because you've got a security policy that says, I need this firewall here. And it has mm-hmm. to be our firewall recognized by, say, PCI or the Nuclear Oversight Authority or whatever. It can't just be like, oh, it's right. over there in the SD-WAN, you know? Right, 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 right. <laughs> yep. Yeah, you can say that, but it might not pass the audit because the audit has rules based from 10 years ago and, you know, <laughs> so on and so on. Yes, you're right, but no, you're not right. So That's the classic so checkbox purchasing strategy, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Aruba's got a lot going on, making its transition. HPE's going through a lot of a big transition. I think most of their resources have been pushed into the Aruba Central, which is this cloud-hosted operational platform that they're now mm-hmm. yep. uh, focusing on, which obviously is linked to GreenLake, and servicizing, you know, green laking everything over there. So maybe they've been allocating most of their developer resources in that direction. And and in, in the years ahead, we'll see some sort of change out to complete the portfolio, or maybe not. I mean, I've been saying this about HPE for over a decade, and they still haven't bought a firewall company. They're not listening to me, so I don't know why I'm even saying anything. I think they had a company called, they bought a company called Tipping Point, which is sort of straddling the next-gen firewall IPS market a long time ago. I don't know yeah. what happened to that product. Uh, it was one of those like hardware-accelerated boxes, if I recall correctly, and then HP bought it, and then it just kind of disappeared from view. So Tipping Point ended up with Trend Micro, which today oh, okay. sort of feels more like a rent extraction company than um, a modern, vibrant security company to me, at least. Uh, doesn't, you know, mainly still focused on things like email security and endpoint sort of sort of where cisco was like five years ago with its product offering and it's sort of hosted security rather than cloud security if you know what i mean and yeah. they're still moving uh but tipping point was never a firewall it was an ips right that could block traffic yes and it was very strictly limited uh performance was wasn't awesome but great features great functionality except for the fact that it wasn't very stable and i believe some of the people piped up in, that i was chatting to and said oh yeah we called it tripping point because it used to fall over all the time. So <laughs> hopefully they've got that fixed these days. Uh, but even then, it wasn't a firewall because it wasn't didn't. You're right. It was IPS. Firewall. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, with some deep inspection and some DLP and various things, and yeah. you still had to go and buy a firewall to put behind it because you had to have a firewall, right? Of course. Yep. Mm. Yeah. And these days, if you've got an SD WAN product and you go and buy a Fortinet firewall. You've just let Fortinet come in and start trying to pitch your SD-WAN out the door. So it doesn't seem wise. Yeah. And one more note on Aruba Central, they have also uh, revamped the whole uh, user interface and done it in a very interesting way. So if you are a Central customer or thinking about it, it's probably worth going and asking for a demo to see what they're doing. Uh, They've come up with this sort of what they're calling new sunburst topology, where if you're trying to investigate a device, it just sits at the center of the screen and then you see all the devices connected to it. It's really kind of interesting. Uh, So a a different way to look at your network management network. So if you are a Central customer, it might be worth checking out because it is kind of cool. Hmm. So maybe that's where they're spending their developer resources. Yes. Spending it on the graphics. Yeah. All right. uh, Moving on to NetBrain. They've announced version 11 of their NetBrain platform. They're now calling NetBrain NextGen. Uh, The company's positioning the latest version of the product as kind of a digital twin or intent-based networking system. Um, And they're also touting a no-code approach to network management. I am whelmed, Drew. Whelmed, I tell you. Whelmed, yes. Not underwhelmed, just whelmed. Um, I just don't find this very, very compelling. I'm being a bit of a whiner today, aren't I? Being a bit of a Debbie Downer. Um, I, I think um, five years ago, NetBrain had a very unique product. It was doing asset and configuration management when nobody was. 
and they did a pretty good job of making diagrams out of it. So in assess, in a very key way, it was a visibility tool. But today, every asset, every SDN platform has those types of assets and configuration management. That's kind of like armpits these days. And sort of let NetBrain way out on a on an edge where I don't couldn't imagine that they were still picking up too many new customers when everybody else already had one of these. And the the real gap in visibility tools is that they can't fix anything. Telling you that there's a problem over there isn't any help. What now? What we expect to be able to do with SDN and modern programming methodologies and all the tools at our disposal is to go out there and click something that says fix it, mm -hmm. right? And so. What they've done is the obvious next action is to build um, some features into the product where you can actually say, well, I've got automations. So if you see a, th a thing in the visibility and you know it's a problem, it, you know, if I reboot that router, something will come back online. Well, you can get a script and push it out and say, reboot that router, click the button. And that's basically what they've done here. Now, this isn't new. Look at Itential, look at Glueware, who have done exactly this, where they enhance the productivity of the network operations team by giving you collections of automations into a platform management tool. So you can collect hundreds and hundreds of automation scripts and tools. You can write your own. You can bring in other people's. You can use uh, the vendor's abstractions. And so claiming that you're now using a digital twin or a model, sort of, you know, which we were talking about with intent-based, I want to say five years ago. Mm -hmm. Remember when intent-based networking, we were always talking about working on the model and abstractions right. and stuff like that. Sort right. of feels like, oh, well, we should get on with that and catch up with our competitors. So good for NetBrain that they're still in the game. Um, they need to pick up the pace, in my opinion. Yeah, it wasn't clear to me in the briefing what the no-code element was. It may have been something I missed, but we do have a link in the show notes if you want to go read up on that it. It means they're not doing the code, I think. No, I'm just joking. It'll mean there's some sort of... <laughs> I mean, I know what no-code means. Be... It just wasn't clear to me yeah. what that element was yeah. within the NetBrain Yeah, platform, they'll have some so. sort of drag and drop tool where you can drag in automations, yeah. and then it'll talk to the box and show you what are the you know, what What do you want to do? So if you, you click on the interface from that box, it'll say, well, you have to give me these variables, the IP address, the subnet mask, the default gateway, so on yeah. and so forth. So that's, I guess what it, uh, yeah, what it sounded like to me was you write a script and they'll import it into NetBrain. And I'm like, well, then I just coded mm. it, didn't I? But I, I guess we're getting into semantics, so. <laughs> yeah, like I said, where we were four or five years ago with the early movers, this yeah. feels like, feels late and um, whelming. So well, I hope they continue to iterate quickly and start to show more value. We certainly saw Itential do this two years ago. So for example, we did talk with them, and then we've done a number of shows with them about their um, automation gateway, where they collect all the automations together. And Glueware's done the no-code thing as well. Yeah. All right, uh, moving on. Cisco's announced an extended detection and response, or XDR, service. It's offered via the cloud. The service will collect telemetry from endpoint, uh, Cisco secure client, as well as networks, firewalls, email, identity stores, and DNS. And the goal is to help SOC operators quickly identify and respond to attacks based on information that's orchestrated across all of these sources. Uh, Cisco says the XDR service is going to partner with third-party security tools, including firewalls from Palo Alto and Checkpoint, client security agents from CrowdStrike, Palo Alto, Microsoft, and others, NDRs from ExtraHop and Darktrace, and SIEM products. This is really quite a full-featured product, considering that it's a product in beta. Um, considering it's a Cisco security product, I think a lot of people will be very wary of it because their reputation for quality code or quality products is a bit damaged at this point in time. So I wouldn't be running out for full availability in July 2023. I'd maybe wait a while, a couple of years for Cisco to get the bugs ironed out because Cisco likes to ship the bugs and for you to find them for it. <laughs> And that hasn't changed uh, any time that I've heard. Um, the challenge that I think here 
is that in it's following this theme of if you've got lots and lots of security tools, we have to integrate them into something simpler and more usable. Mm-hmm. This isn't a very useful tool if you're not operating a SOC. Um, getting real-time reporting from server logs and third-party tools and from your firewalls and then integrating them all together to look for where problems are. Um, it's not necessarily unless you've got a particular security profile. What I would also know is that the XAR market is well-established. It's probably seven or eight years old at this stage. Yes. Certainly that whole process has been evolving. People targeted the SOC. So I feel like Cisco's catching up late. So not fast following here. This feels more like slow following. I wonder why it took so long. I have no information to suggest why. Um, And then it just makes me want to ask the question is, can Cisco make an XDR product that can disrupt companies who are focused and specifically delivering XDR? Or is it enough to wait and have a product that comes in and wait for the next SOC refresh and maybe they can get in through the door then, you know, can Cisco branding be enough for security professionals who are more often than not hostile to brand names? They much rather use point solutions, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, uh, the issue with incident response isn't a lack of data. It's typically too much data that's all poorly correlated. So this is a big problem any XDR is going to have to solve, whether Cisco's developers internally are up for it is hard because it's frankly a very hard problem. Uh, I do think it's smart of Cisco to integrate with other big players in security. Um, The lack of third-party integration would, I think, delegitimize any kind of product like this. So good to see Cisco not putting on blinders here and be like, we can get it all ourselves from our own stuff. Um, Mm. This is also, you know, seems we're supposed to solve this problem they didn't uh whether xdr solves it is still wait and see uh but it is a significant problem if somebody can crack this nut fantastic it's better for all of us but again yes it's also companies that have a sock are of a particular size and a particular risk profile so it's a limited market as well yeah and and that market happened a few years ago <laughs> so um, <laughs> by and large that's not that's not a blanket statement by the way but yeah yeah We'll see. We'll just see how it goes out. I, I think this is good for Cisco. It's good that they're bringing new products in to close the gaps in their portfolio. Slow following would be the best summary of this. And um, if this has been developed, I think it's going to need a while to bake. Uh, maybe don't rush into it. Yeah. Uh, moving on, Microsoft is going to unbundle Teams from its Office 365 suite, according to the Financial Times and Engadget. It's an attempt to assuage uh, EU regulators concerned about anti-competitive practices. Engadget says Microsoft will offer Office with and without Teams added in, but further details on when or how this might happen are not available. Talks are apparently ongoing still between Microsoft and EU regulators. Yeah, Microsoft had a big week with both the European Union and the United Kingdom regulators. Uh, the US, uh, and it'll run into the US regulators in a few months. Um, I think the key point here is around Teams is that there are limited network effects to this as a product. That is, Teams doesn't have enough value to force me to use Microsoft Office or vice versa. Companies who are using Zoom or, you know, something like WebEx or any one of a dozen other, you know, platforms like Slack even and so forth or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever it is this week that's a favorite sharing tool, uh, communication tool, um, I think that really that's that was never a thing. So for Microsoft to say, oh, we'll just unbundle it, doesn't cost them anything. It's not going to sell more Microsoft Office into the consumer market space. In terms of corporates, of course, they, they'll already have Microsoft Office, so selling it bundled to businesses is a no big deal. But keep in mind that when uh, Microsoft tried to bundle Skype into Microsoft Office, that was a miserable failure, and people just did not want have to go and get Office to get Skype, and that didn't last very long, and Skype is a standalone product. So it's very hard to argue to a government competition regulator, oh, we've got this you know, sharing tool, team, team, teamwork tool, 
teams and then they'd point at Skype and go, well, what's that? What's different about that? Why is that not bundled? And it'd be like game over sort of thing. Yeah, I guess the investigation was kicked off back in 2020 because Slack, uh, which competes with teams, filed a complaint with the European Commission. Uh, Slack's now owned by Salesforce. Uh, I, uh, you know, on the one hand, I support competition. On the other hand, I feel like the bundling wars are over and the bundlers have won. Uh, so this seems like a tempest in the teapot. I, and if Microsoft can be like, sure, we won't bundle Teams uh, because people are buying Office for Office, not for Teams. And Teams was a nice add-on uh, that they would find mm -hmm. good enough. Uh, at, I think which increasingly would keep them from Office doesn't. Office doesn't matter. Like right now, I, I saw something in my inbox the other day saying, you can buy Microsoft Office with a lifetime license for 50 bucks. That's probably that's for not consumers, not for business though. Yeah. We're talking that's about not business. That's for business, that's yeah. for consumers. But yeah. still, right? Mm -hmm. um, still not worth 50 bucks. You'd have to give it away for free. Actually, you'd have to pay me to use it, but um, a lot uh, to do that. But I do note that uh, Microsoft did have a very bad week with the UK Competition Markets Authority, the CMA. Um, the UK CMA has decided to block Microsoft's bid for Activision. Mm -hmm. That's probably enough for that bid to fall apart globally. Um, the EU Competition Authority has already signaled that it is going to do a deeper investigation. Because Activision generates around 700 million of its 6 billion turnover in the UK, kind of tough to say, oh, well, we just won't sell Activision games in the UK. <laughs> Because you know, that's just not going to work, right, right? Right. So you can do that with your Telegram or your Facebook Messenger or whatever. If if the UK says you have to comply to these rules and you just go, well, you know, we're not going to do it. We're just not going to do that. We'll pull it out of your country. That's fine. It's not like you've lost a whole lot of revenue. But the Activision deal is probably a problem. Um, the biggest thing, though, was just their uh, chief lawyer, now president of something or another inside of Microsoft, said called it the darkest day in our four decades in Britain, which is hysterical. <laughs> Microsoft doesn't pay any tax in the UK, and the governments have zero incentive to be nice to them. Uh, I can't, For some I, reason, that, that language has echoes of the Blitz, which is like, come on, man, this is we're talking about a business deal, not, not an actual war. Uh, calm down. Mm -hmm, that's right. And the way it works, of course, is they can go and appeal the, the CMA's uh, decision, but in reality, in the business world, the damage has already been done. This, it's going to, if they appeal it, it's going to take a couple of years and the moment for the acquisition will have passed. Who knows? Activision may already want to reprice the deal. You know, Activision is a troubled asset because it's had so many problems with accusations of uh, internal mis uh, impropriety and various sorts of abuse of workers and things like that. So I don't know where it's going to end up, but the EU is going to do, uh, to sit there and say, I think it's bad for Britain. There's a clear message here. The U U European Union is a more attractive place to start a business if you someday want to sell it. The English Channel has never seen wider. He's going to regret that. You just don't tell that to a government. Right? <laughs> and especially when you don't pay tax, right? If you pay no tax in a country for a government, the, you are not a stakeholder, right? Right. You have to suck it up and take whatever you can get. Right, so right, we'll right. see. We'll yeah. see. Yeah. All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. Your branch has changed, your SD-WAN should too. So join Palo Alto Networks to see how AI and ML are powering next-gen SD-WAN and SASE for branches. As businesses focus on driving the next growth phase, branch transformation has become a key priority for IT leaders. Critical industries such as finance, retail, healthcare, and manufacturing rely on a network of branch offices to serve their customers well. The new established trend of hybrid work, digital-first customers, and accelerated cloud adoption are forcing organizations to rethink their branch IT strategy. So you can join SDX Central and Palo Alto Networks Networks for an exclusive online event and see how NextGen, SD-WAN, and SASE can help you modernize and secure your branches. Go to sdxcentral.com to get the link for this free event 
or see the show notes for Network Break episode 428. All right, a couple more stories before we wrap. Uh, Google's parent company Alphabet reported earnings for its first fiscal quarter. The company had revenues of $69.8 billion, up 3% year-over-year, and net income of $15.5 billion, down slightly year-over-year. Uh, Alphabet's also claiming that the Google Cloud business is profitable for the first time ever. Google Cloud had revenues of $7.4 billion, and Alphabet cites an operating income of $191 million for this quarter. This time last year, it reported a loss of $706 million. So you're turning around a company to the tune of 10%. <laughs> mm-hmm. So on on 7.4 billion of revenue you're suddenly making a 200 you've gone from a 700 million loss to a 200 million profit. That's um something's happened there. Um the most people that I've seen talking about this are sort of questioning how did you suddenly manage to make a profit at that sort of number? Did you just stop growing and investing like so I went off and did some searching and I came up with a a blog post from somebody who was highlighting uh, the fact that the useful life of servers and network assets at the cloud companies is now moved out to five to six years. And the article actually highlights that each one of the companies, AWS, Google, have all made statements saying that their switches and servers are now lasting up to five to six years. And he's actually quoting from their 10Qs and 10Ks, which they submit to the SEC. Remember when clouds first came out and they said, oh, yes, now we're going to rotate the hardware every two years because that's the only way we can keep up with growth. Turns out they're keeping it for the same length as what an enterprise does. Isn't that interesting? That is I find interesting. That interesting. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, you know, a couple of ways, other sort of ways to look at this is you can say um, if, Google, if Google Cloud is no longer building our capacity because it's slowing, then maybe CapEx is slowing and uh, maybe now they're making a profit. Right. So I, all of the others are still spending big. Yeah, Sorry. Uh, yeah. I'll note that Google Cloud reported that 191 figure, 191 million figure as operating income, not net income. Operating income is a subset of net income. It doesn't include possible expenses like taxes, interest expenses, non-recurring expenses. So uh, it's possible that there's just some. It's, I, I'm not going to say accounting trickery. It's just a different way to to demonstrate this revenue. Mm. If they were actually profitable with Google Cloud net income, I think they would have reported it. My assumption is uh, that mm. uh, it's not profitable reporting as net income, so they went with the operating income number because it looked better. No. Like, for what definition of profitable? Right. That's the first right. note that I, you know, I had, there are lots of ways to define prof pre-tax, pre-costs, you know, pre-what, pre pre-capex, like if you took the capex out, how much money would we make, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yes. So I, I think this is being a bit overdone, but it did lead me to the fact that all of the major off-prem cloud companies are now running somewhere between four to six years on their hardware infrastructure. And that is probably being very good for their financials internally because they may have budgeted two years then three, and now it's even getting out further. So they're spending a lot less capital than we previously thought. Yeah. Uh, Juniper also reported financial results for Q1. The company posted revenues of $1.37 billion, up 17% year-over-year, and net income of $85.4 million, up 53% year-over-year, although down 53% from the previous quarter. Yeah. I mean, Juniper just seems to have really turned itself around. With those sorts of numbers, 17% up year-over-year, yeah. net income up 50%, still not a lot on all things considered. Um, and they're still sitting on a massive backlog. So like most of the technology companies, I was reading somewhere today um, that someone was told that they had a project, they got together with the vendor, the vendor did a, you know, they put together an entire bid on the thing and they said, yes, we'll be able to get you a shipment in 18 months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and wow. so the vendor turned around and went, <laughs> so the customer went, 
okay, great. And then went out and bought an open solution from third parties, right? <laughs> Wasn't going to wait for a vendor to deliver it. They just went and bought some white box and got going. You just can't wait 18 months in the current market. So no, apparently okay. they saved a fortune and now they've discovered the joys of white box networking. Of course, if you read the press release, that's exactly what they were trying to say. So who knows whether they are indeed enjoying the freedom or maybe the freedom's just a bit too tight around the waist or something. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Mm. On that Juniper story by Customer Vertical Enterprise is their top uh, revenue generator service provider is in second by just a few million dollars. And uh, the cloud accounts for just half of what enterprise or service providers earn for Juniper. So yeah, again, that recommitment to enterprise has paid off for Juniper. Yeah, because they were really deep in hock to the cloud companies at one point, so selling them big routers. And now it's really a company that's doing enterprise with some you know, off-prem cloud stuff on the side. Yeah. Which is probably where Arista wants to be. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so one last thing. Uh, I wanted to find out if anybody – I had a bit of scuttlebutt this week. I read an article in one of the mainstream press from a – I'm not going to link to it because the the source wasn't particularly reliable, but it did scratch an itch. Um, it was suggesting that employers are advertising technology jobs with no intention of hiring. And this article suggested it could be up to 20% of positions are basically never going to be hired for because they tell their existing team members or the, the salary slaves who are, who are left behind that we're working on finding a replacement and to keep working harder, we'll get somebody in to help you soon, but actually have zero intention of actually hiring anyone. That rings true to some extent. I'm just wondering if anybody's... Uh, run into that if they got any stories that they want to send us in confidence or not about you know you you keep seeing these jobs come up month after month after month they've got ridiculous you know we're going to pay minimum wage for somebody with 10 years experience and you know the highest possible certification then it just might not be a serious job offer mm, that's terrible it's terrible to lead people well, on like that it's business i've seen it <laughs> It I'm sure that I doesn't excuse I, it that the, the fact that it exists doesn't excuse it. But yes, I may have done something like that at one point in my career when I was oh dear uh, f fixing an IT team. Yes, we're uh, definitely advertising. Let's get some job description, put them out, and everything. But the real job was to get change change the culture of the team. So. Interesting. Uh, I will note. I think I was reading uh, one of the articles we've linked to about the Google results uh, in that uh, a note saying that uh, they have no plans to hire back. I think it was a, approximately 12,000 people they laid off earlier this year. So uh, mm. there may be something to this uh, recruitment story you, you stumbled on. Yeah, it seems to be related. Anyway, we're out of time for today. We are out of time. Thank you for listening. Uh, do stick around. We have our sponsored conversation with ITQ on supporting hybrid cloud with VMware and enabling a remote workforce with VMware Workspace ONE. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we discuss multi-cloud deployments and supporting hybrid workers with VMware's Workspace ONE. We're sponsored by VMware, and we'll be talking with VMware partner ITQ. Our guest from ITQ is Johan von Amersfoort. He is a technologist for digital workspace and AI from ITQ. Uh, Johan, welcome to the podcast. And before we dive in, can you give us a quick overview of ITQ and what the company does? ITQ is a 100% focused VMware partner. So we only do VMware and a little bit of the ecosystem around it. We marked 21 years this year. We started as a consultancy company, but mm -hmm. in the last couple of years, we also expanded our services portfolio to manage services and support services as well. And the main reason for that is that we can now serve customers end to end from right. start. Customers tend to want to buy their products and their services from the same place. So even when you start as a services company, you tend to migrate to providing product over time. 
Uh, yeah, we do. So mm. uh, customers could start with from a digital workspace perspective, for instance, mm. simple with a, with a VDI platform. But over time, we notice that the customer might have uh, like a focus on on hybrid working uh, in a way that VDI as a just a sole platform doesn't make sense anymore. Mm. Can I ask a weird question here? Workspace One is the virtual desktop or the a technology that VMware sells to market. We haven't heard a whole lot about it. And yet during COVID, I think it was super important to a lot of companies. And even today, a lot of companies are still using it as a way of doing remote computing or distributed computing. Is that correct? Is my perspective correct here? Are companies still doubling down on this virtual desktop infrastructure? Well, not really. So uh, Workspace ONE is a platform focused on managing modern endpoints. and managing identity, uh, basically offering every employee of a company uh, a place to work uh, from home, from the office, from basically any any location uh, and provide access to any type of application. Could be traditional, could be modern, could be web-based, including all of the security measures. Now the VDI uh, side of things, uh, that's part of the Horizon platform. and. Mm-hmm. Those platforms combined are called the Anywhere Workspace. Uh, so Workspace One does have a full integration with Horizon. So you could provide mm-hmm. secure access to those traditional apps or to virtual desktops or uh-huh. even manage those virtual desktops in a modern way through mm-hmm. Workspace One. So this is this idea platforms. of VMware's cloud smart ecosystem. You want to have stuff that's on-prem in, you know, that's cloud-like, so virtual desktops on-prem. And for apps that are in that sort of heritage mode, um, but you also want to be able to access cloud resources. And so Workspace One then is covering that extra part where Horizon was the VDI, but Workspace One is now saying there's stuff in the public cloud as well. Exactly. Uh, But next to, uh, because Horizon was primarily focused at uh, on-prem VDI Mm -hmm. platforms based on, on customers' own data centers, but the Horizon mm-hmm. platform itself is now also expanding to different cloud offerings. So Horizon Cloud, if you will, uh, is the platform that provide could provide access to desktops running on Azure, Google, AWS. It doesn't really matter. And through a single brokering portal, end users could access a desktop from basically any place, anywhere, anyhow. So the idea is that not only are we, you're looking to support remote work, but also this hybrid cloud and multi-cloud environment. 100% true. Yeah. Do that. How does ITQ bring that to to your customers? Because that, that doesn't sound um, easy, shall we say, or no, obvious not, because yeah. <laughs> that's a bucket full of, that's a bucket full of trouble. That's one of the biggest misconceptions, right? So a customer uh, calls us like, we want to work in a hybrid fashion. Could you mm. help us? Yeah, sure. But like, the first thing we always do is run a full-blown assessment in such an organization to basically get an overview, a detailed overview of applications, their endpoints, how they work, when they work, where they work, how their current Active Directory is being used. Basically, massive data lake with every type of information that we need to propose the best way of working to the customer. And that could be based on full-blown Workspace ONE. It could be based on full-blown Horizon something in the middle to actually create a hybrid way of working and also include um, the cloud platforms if, uh, if necessary. And if the use cases that the customer are trying to implement or to achieve actually make sense to, uh, to run that on cloud as well. Well, there's a lot of pain in off-prem cloud. So I only see two types of cloud, on-prem and off-prem, right? In 
a lot of people, if you want to blend them together, that's called hybrid cloud. And as soon as you say hybrid, I spell that P-A-I-N. So I would think that a lot of customers that have Horizon or want Horizon, but they also want to have off-prem cloud as well. So am I right in thinking that if I started with some on-prem and having Workspace ONE means I can stretch out as needed or migrate as needed in some way? Uh, yes, that's part of the truth. So Workspace ONE provide unified access to any type of application or any type of desktop. Horizon and the tooling that's part of Horizon, such as app volumes for application delivery, DEM, Dynamic Environment Manager, to provide profile management for like Windows users. All of those tools are capable of stretching to multiple clouds and on-prem clouds as well. So what we've been seeing quite recently is that at the beginning of the first pandemic, a lot of customers chose to run their workloads at a hyperscaler, just to spun up a bunch of desktops, run those uh, uh, their applications on them because they needed a, a way to, uh, to work in a hybrid or in a remote fashion. What we mm. saw is that a lot of customers signed multi-year contracts with multi-year reservations. Mm -hmm. And especially the ones that had a, a term of three years have now expanded. Cloud costs have increased enormously. And mm. um, for the last couple of months, we've been migrating customers back from cloud to on-prem environments. Oh, repatriation. Yeah. Oh, I'm tired of people telling me that no one's moving back off, off from off-prem to on-prem. On-prem, because that's what they say. You know, all these develop developers going. No one's ever moving anything off the cloud. I'm going. Oh yes, they are. So this is definitely happening. Yeah, it's definitely happening, and you know, all ties to the right type of workload. So if you run some of your services in native cloud, which makes perfect sense, then yeah, keep them there because that's what cloud was originally created for. But if mm -hmm. you run your monolith applications, your monolith VMs, or your in this case desktops in the cloud mm. with yeah no specific reason other than you know provide remote access mm. then it's a fairly expensive solution to be uh, to be honest my impression is that a lot of organizations were sort of caught up in the hype of cloud is the new thing and we need to digitally transform and so there were all these initiatives to sort of lift and shift applications that were running fine on prem into the cloud because it was cloud but you're saying uh, IT organizations now recognizing maybe this isn't the best way to do this. Let's start to bring stuff, some stuff back on prem. And it, are, are you, you're seeing it as those sort of traditional monolithic applications? I see a, a virtual desktop as a monolith application. So it means that you need a lot of tooling to manage those virtual desktops as well, to manage applications, to manage security, to manage profile and, and user related settings, to basically manage anything that makes that virtual desktop workable and manageable. Mm -hmm. To, to be fairly honest, like a VDI platform, I always kind of uh, make relation to MacGyver. MacGyver was really good at making awesome stuff with a lot of different tools and, and band-aids and, and, and pocket knives. That's what we do with VDI as well. We have a lot of pocket knives and, and tools and basically the Horizon suite provides us all of the tools to make VDI a great place to work, but it comes mm. with a cost and that cost is, is, uh, is uh, administrative overhead. And that's definitely something with modern mm. management that you don't have or have less. Yeah, well, MacGyver only makes it to last till the end of the episode. And the problem with IT is once something's built, it never gets changed ever again. So and you really want to, yeah, you want to get it right the first time. You don't want to MacGyver something up. You want to actually do it. Because <laughs> you're going to be right MacGyvering it for the rest of your life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, circling Job security. Back to, <laughs> well, circling back to your question, like what makes IDQ unique? Uh, we've been spending a lot of time in the last couple of years 
hmm. um, figuring out what the best way of MacGyvering such a solution is. And um, hmm. I think we yeah. did a really awesome job. Um, it shows in the type of customers that we're currently working with. Mm-hmm. Um, at first, we were focusing on purely the Netherlands. But mm-hmm. now, like uh, most of our customers, most of the customers I work with um, are global recognized Fortune 500 car- uh, customers um, mm. that see what, what you know, uh, what results we achieved so far with o- other customers, how mm-hmm. we can create customer success and successful outcome. And we've been really successful at that. So we're seeing a shift in the type of customers that, that approach ITQ uh, because they see what valuable VMware partner we are. Now, one thing you said about uh, talking about Workspace ONE and Anywhere Workspace is that end users can access any application on any device. And you talked about the benefit is giving you know IT managers some control. But when you say any application, any device, that sounds like not any control. So how are you actually able to get your arms around that? That's a really good question. So what we strongly focus on uh, and what we believe is that the way you tend to secure a device up till a couple of years ago, that was strongly focused on let's remove all uh, permissions uh, for for the end user. Let's uh, put all applications on it, uh, and let's secure it from the ground up, and make sure that the end user um, uh, was is hardly a- able to do um, something outside of right. their work. You essentially want to put them in a box, and and yeah, end users tend not to like that. Absolutely. So what we've seen in the last couple of years is that boxes don't work. So if you, as an employer, provide a box, and the uh, the end user is used to Let's say the end user or the employee just left university, was able to do all of her or his work on a fancy MacBook or on on something else. It doesn't really matter. Other form factor. That's where the challenge lies, because now you go to a company, the company provides you with a 17 inch Mac or laptop that's completely secured and uh, is basically that box. What are you going to do as an employee? Are you going to do your work in a way that that's not only how you w- weren't used to uh, to do it, but also uh, makes you maybe even frustrate or get frustrated. So you leave the company. And this is why where Workspace ONE provides something else. One of the things that we do from a security perspective, coming back to your question, is that we enforce security through compliancy. So we provide a, a device, the, the end user could buy it themselves, it doesn't really matter, and roll it into Workspace ONE. And we basically provide a next-gen antivirus solution. We provide a firewall and some other security-related tools. And we enforce what we call compliancy policies. So as soon as the end user, for instance, disables encryption or disables a firewall or disables a virus scanner or cancels uh, security patches, we automatically revoke access to the backend. So they cannot access any corporate resources anymore because we detect that their device is incompliant. So the idea here is that that you're providing some balance between end user choice of device and security controls and and compliance controls for the IT organization. Absolutely. And if we are now talking to developers or CAD designers or people that do complex things on uh, on complex devices, but still uh, want to uh, also be able to to work with the, uh, the, the company backend, this is a perfect solution because a developer wants preferably all admin access to a device mm. where he or she is developing on. Mm-hmm. And if it you, also plays into the zero trust. We've got so much of a thrust in the industry around zero trust. You're also implementing that in a slightly different way to what most of the other zero trust uh, products are doing, but it's an effective zero trust strategy nonetheless. It is. And mostly because also of, of this, uh, this example. So, uh, mm-hmm. We are capable of providing that zero trust strategy to, I would say, most of the uh, of the use cases that we that we uh, uh, come across. 
simply because mm -hmm. of this philosophy behind it. And it's simple. Uh, like uh, Google once uh, created the uh, Beyond Corp project, and the only yeah. thing an, uh, an employee at Google sees or does is like, there's there's a button in Chrome. If it's a light, basically, if it's green, I'm secure. If it's red, I'm not secure. And I need to call uh, IT. We yeah. do the exact yeah. same thing. So mm. there's a compliance uh, window in the Workspace ONE um, client, and and the end user can actually see if they're complying, yes or no. If not, yeah. they don't get access. If they do, uh, if it's if it's green, basically, they do get access, and that works really well. There's a lot of services in there. This is why ITQ is so important to this product is because you've got to talk to the customer and work out what's in and what's out. And what's, you know, if somebody's not allowed, you know, how do you cut the CEO off because he's not inside policy? Do you know that sort of stuff? Because that's hard. It is. But at the other hand, uh, because we're an independent company, mm -hmm. we, we can actually make this work. CEOs from customers of ours trust us with that because we have a, a track record that's unbeaten. And I think what makes us, uh, like I mentioned at the beginning of, of, of the podcast, that we focus on VMware and the ecosystem around it. So mm -hmm. one of the examples from a zero trust perspective is that now we, we announced a, a partnership with NetClean quite recently. Uh, NetClean yeah. is a solution that detects child sexual abuse material, and it's mm -hmm. fully com complementary to our zero trust as a service offering. So right. we, we can actually provide that solution now as well as part of that offering to customers uh, and make them like feel secure in an additional way. And I think that makes ITQ also unique that we can actually see what the, uh, the market is looking for or maybe mm -hmm. even um, uh, help shape the market by adding those solutions to our offerings. All right. Well, there's a lot more to talk about here, but we are at the end of our time. Uh, thank you, Johan, for joining us. And thanks to VMware for being a sponsor. You can head on over to VMware.com to find out more about hybrid cloud and remote work. And while you're surfing, head on over to PacketPushers.net for even more podcast goodness. You can also find Packet Pushers on Twitter, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And remember, too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>